This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 25th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Fleming Rose was among a handful of Danish journalists responsible for publishing 12 depictions of the Prophet Muhammad and launching a new debate on free speech. He tells his story in the new book, The Tyranny of Silence. We spoke about the book this month. You recently did a Reddit Ask Me Anything, and uh, one of the people asked you there, what was the most shocking thing that you've seen in your life? And you said, uh, watching peaceful demonstrators being killed by the Soviet army in Lithuania in 1991. I was present when Soviet soldiers attacked the TV tower uh, in Vilnius on the night of January 13th. How does that experience inform the recent experience with uh, publication of the cartoons related to the Prophet Muhammad and the sort of threats of violence and the violent reaction that you experienced? You know, I was uh, a young reporter back then. I was, I think I was uh, 32 years old. I had just started as a foreign correspondent at the newspaper I used to work at at the time. And, and this came as a total surprise that uh, there had been a lot of, you know, m- mice and mouse game between the Soviet army and the demonstrators in Lithuania. And suddenly they attacked and uh, suddenly it became very violent. Um, I mean, <coughs> The, the 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 broader context of of this is that I uh, I spent uh, a lot of time in the Soviet Union. My wife is from the former from the former Soviet Union. I worked as a translator with Russian, um, and uh, I worked with uh, refugees from the former Soviet Union. And 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 through that experience, I got in touch with uh, dissidents uh, in the uh, Eastern Bloc, uh, and. Um, and you know the the uh, the fact that they paid a high price for their uh, willingness to stand up to uh, tyranny and to insist on the right to speak their mind and criticize the political regime in the Soviet Union, uh, even paying for it with the long. Uh, prison terms in labor camps in Siberia and, and other play places, or they were kicked out of uh, their home country, uh, made a huge impression uh, on me. And and I think it it was a formative experience that served as the background for my approach to the cartoon crisis. Uh, a lot of Denmark, a lot of people in Denmark do not notice, did not notice that you know that there was a problem with self censorship when he came to dealing with Islam uh, almost 10 years ago. But I, having experienced, uh, you know, the the evils of self-censorship in the Soviet Union and uh, what it can do to a society, I mean, in the end, when people internalize those limits, uh, the powers that be do not need to use that all that much violence. It's only when people stand up to uh, the limitations that uh, the powers of forces use violence. And the vast majority of people in the Soviet Union had just internalized these things. Um, and uh, I will not compare Denmark and Western Europe to the Soviet Union, but it's, it, was some, it was some of the same mechanism that I saw at play. And that was what we wanted to explore you know, by commissioning those cartoons and by publishing them and and the, all the debates uh, that followed. How much debate preceded uh, that, the publication of those cartoons, and uh, how surprising was the reaction? 
I mean, there, there was a, a quite a debate within uh, the newspaper, uh, you know, not among reporters, but on the level of e- editors. Um, uh, the, we just had one case with a children's writer who had came come forward and said that uh, he was writing a book about the life of the prophet for children, and we do need illustrations of main characters in children's books. And he had problems finding an illustrator. And the one who finally said yes insisted on anonymity, which is a form of self-censorship. You do not want to appear under your own name because you are afraid of the consequences of what you are saying. Um, but but there was only that for one example when I commissioned the cartoons. And then they were only published you know, two weeks later because we were not sure if that was enough documentation to go with that story. But while we were... Having that debate, several we experienced several other cases of self-censorship. There was a museum in London that uh, removed an installation called God is Great uh, because um, uh, the, the museum was afraid that it might cause uh, you know, an aggressive reaction from Muslims. There was a similar case in Gothenburg, Sweden, also with a painting that was removed after um, uh, some Muslims had complained about that uh, piece of art and, and demanded that it be removed. Uh, there was a translation of uh, a book by Ayan Hirschiali, a Somalia-born former Dutch politician who is now residing in the U.S. and has been living in hiding for many years. Uh, she wrote a book critical of Islam and and the Finnish publisher removed sentences from her work without asking her because they were afraid that it might cause a reaction. And a stand-up comedian in Denmark gave an interview to my newspaper in which he literally said, you know, I'm not afraid of mocking the Bible in front of a camera, but I'm afraid to do the same thing with the Quran." So he was making a difference between the way he would treat uh, two religions when it comes to satire. And then finally, there was a meeting in Copenhagen between the Danish prime minister and a group of Danish imams. And at that meeting, two of the imams explicitly asked the prime minister to interfere with the press, uh, to, make si- to make his influence on the press in order to get more positive coverage of Islam. And that basically was a call for censorship. I mean, a call to use the tools of state power to get a specific point of view across. So all this happened within the course of one or two weeks, and it convinced me and my co-editors that, you know, that this was a legitimate story. Uh, we, 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 had, we had heard about a problem. We tried to find out if it's true or not. And I think uh, we found out, you know, we have enough uh, documentation to go with this story. But of course, we didn't anticipate the kind of reaction that we received, you know, four months later with this uh, global uproar. Uh, we had expected a debate within Denmark. Uh, about about you know the limits of free speech, about self censorship, about how you handle the problems of integration um, in a multicultural society, but but not anything not anything on on um, on uh, the magnitude that uh, we experienced a few months later. Before we started recording, you told me that were you to visit a mosque you would observe all of the requirements of the people who mm. operate uh, that place. But for uh, the people of Islam or any religion, frankly, to ask you to observe their taboos in public, 
you equate that to submission to their will. Absolutely, and and that is incompatible with a uh, with with a secular de- democracy where we have freedom of religion, and where different religions and non-religions, also ideologies, also atheists, uh, have to live side by side, and and the point is that you you do not have a right to impose your uh, values or your taboos on uh, on other people. Um, and 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 I believe that was in fact what we were up against, uh, you know, during that crisis. How unique is the United States with regard to the protection of free speech? It's very unique, and unfortunately, it's getting more and more unique, uh, in the sense that uh, you know I'm a great admirer of the First Amendment, and I would like very much like to uh, see a First Amendment on a global level. Um, because the First Amendment, you know, gives the right to free speech a special status within the constitutional system. It is a right that cannot be balanced against other rights. It's absolute. Um, In Europe and in other parts of the world, you balance the right to free speech against other rights. For instance, the right not to be offended in, in certain circumstances. Uh, so the United States is un- unique, and unfortunately, the global trend is that the United States is getting more and more isolated with its legal approach to free speech. But I will not, you know, I will not Id- uh, um, uh, idealize uh, the U.S. when it comes to, you know, the practicing pra- of, uh, of free speech, because there is a lot of social pressure. Um, trying to limit free speech in the U.S., especially on campuses uh, where you have speech codes, where 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 student associations goes to great length in order to make uh, people who say something that they don't like to shut up uh, and take action ag- uh, against them. Your book does talk about, of course, the depictions of the Prophet Muhammad that you chose to publish, but you also talk about Hindu nationalism, and uh, in Russia, the Orthodox Church, what happened in those instances that uh, concerns you? Well, if you take the Indian, uh, the Hindu nationalists first, um, uh, maybe the most important or most famous Indian artist in the second half of the 20th century, Makbol Fida Hussain, he passed away a few years ago, but he was still alive when this, uh, when this happened. Um, <clears throat> At some point in his career, he, he is a Muslim, he started to uh, paint uh, naked goddess, Shiva goddesses, uh, you know, from Hinduism. And, and it resulted in, in, in several court cases, uh, uh, threats to his life. Uh, and finally, in 2006, I think, he had to leave India at the age of 91 year, years old. Uh, so he fled to Dubai and to London, and and in fact he he died uh, abroad, uh, and and the Hindu nationalists are trying to protect um, their faith, which is basically also here in you know a political ideology uh, against criticism, and and um, and the uh, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, I mean, I have an example in my book uh, that took place a few years ago in Moscow at the Sakharov Museum, and they featured um, uh, an exhibition called Religion Be Careful, 
uh, because they wanted to focus on the problem of how religion started to be more aggressive and uh, demanding, you know, respect um, uh, that and that people were not allowed to challenge religious dogma the way they had earlier. Um, <clears throat> and it was a private private institution. I mean, you you can go, you 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 are free not to go and see uh, those images. But um, uh, within a few days, uh, a group of very offended Orthodox Christians showed up, and they basically destroyed the exhibition. They destroyed the pieces of art, and they destroyed the room where the exhibition took place. And and a guard uh, called the police, and they showed up, and they arrested uh, the perpetrators. And you would think, you know, end of story. But within a couple of weeks, uh, charges were being dropped against the perpetrators of this crime. And instead, charges were being brought against the curator and the museum of the director for incitement to religious hatred. And they were later convicted. And to me, this is a story that makes it very clear what happened in a world when you eradicate the distinction between words and deeds. It's going on all around the world also in, in, in the West, unfortunately, where, where words are being perceived as offensive as a violent criminal uh, action. Um, and, and, and when you do that, when you er- eradicate, eradicate this important distinction, you are not able to distinguish a perpetrator from a victim. They shifted places in, uh, in, uh, in, in this case. How do you evaluate on college campuses you were describing this, and I'm thinking of college campuses in the United States. How do you evaluate that problem of, in some ways, equating words with violent acts? I, I think it. I find it outrageous, and I find find it, you know, uh, diametrical to what uh, higher education is about. Uh, it's about reason. It's about uh, you know uh, that 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 your own prejudices, uh, your own opinions. Your knowledge is being challenged through education. You have to acquire new knowledge, and you do that by, you know, being able to engage in uh, in in discussions, uh, in 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 debates. Uh, so, I mean, I, I I think it's undermining the educational system uh, in 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 a way that 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 you try to limit people's right to speak their mind in a free and uh, open debate. What does it mean when a country prioritizes? dignity above the freedom of speech it it means that you that you you delegate the right to determine to determine what what should be allowed to be said to the one who is an object of speech uh, and and uh, you know i mean it, it 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 gives a tool to those who would like other people to shut up because they can just play the offense card and say you know what you just said I disagree with it, and I think it's offensive, and it uh, it violates my my dignity. So you would have to shut up, uh, and that is a widespread, widely held uh, understanding in uh, in in European constitutions, especially in Germany, for obvious historical reasons. Even though I I, I disagree with that approach. Um, so so while in the United States you have more focus on you know the autonomy. Of the individual, that 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 if you if you limit an individual's right to speak his mind, you um, you uh, you attack 
in a way his humanity because it's part of our autonomy that we have a right to 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 say what we want we have a language instinct as human beings so and 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 we live through stories we listen to stories we tell stories we grow we 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 grow up through stories so when you start to limit Uh, the right to express yourself. You're not only committing a political crime; you're also committing a crime against what I would say human nature, as uh, Simon Rushdie put it to me when I interviewed him some years ago. There is a not insignificant movement in the United States to prohibit and, in some some cases, criminalize anonymous political speech, uh, construed to mean that the, the financial support of ideas that you like. In order, there are some people who would prefer that. In order for you to provide that support to that idea, that you must register with the government and make your name accessible to the public. What do you think of that? You know, I don't. I don't know the case in detail, but but uh, I would be you know against uh, any measure that would limit freedom of expression uh, apart from incitement to violence. Fleming Rose is author of the new Cato book, The Tyranny of Silence. You can watch a forum for the book at cato.org.